Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hello, the Cinephiles fans. This is John. This week on The Cinephiles, Steve Morris and I are going back to the early 90s when English period pieces were all the rage because of Merchant Ivory Productions. And I'm talking about James Ivory and Ismail Merchant. And The Remains of the Day is the film we're talking about, the 1993 British-American drama film that is adapted from the 1989 novel from Kazuo Ishiguro. And this is directed by James Ivory, produced by Ismail Merchant, Mike Nichols, and John Calley. It stars Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, James Fox, Christopher Reeve, a very young Hugh Grant, Ben Chaplin, and you might even catch Lena Headey, or Heady, as some might say. The film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Emma Thompson, Best Adapted Screenplay, and it is ranked, according to the British Film Institute, as the 64th greatest British film of the 20th century. This is personally one of my favorite films. It features an incredibly restrained and gorgeous performance from Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson bringing an incredible performance herself to go toe-to-toe with Mr. Hopkins. James Fox is heartbreaking as the Earl of Darns and Christopher Reeve in all his splendor and leading man glory in this film as well, and Hugh Grant bringing some nice comedy relief uh, throughout the movie when he does appear. This was 
also nominated for Best Original Score, which was composed by Richard Robbins. The film focuses on the relationship of Anthony Hopkins' Mr. Stevens, who is the butler of Darlington Hall, and Emma Thompson's Miss Kenton, who is the housekeeper of Darlington Hall, and this unrequited love between them that tragically does not see the light of day. And if you're wondering what short we're doing this week for you patrons out there, we're talking about what it's like to be working on a bad play slash movie. And also, if you're looking to buy the movie, uh, it is available, of course, all the films we cover are available at www.cine-files.net for you to purchase. So that's part one this week of the remains of the day here on The Cinephiles. I'm afraid you can't talk to me like this, Miss Kenton. I'm afraid I must, Mr. Stevens. I'm giving you serious advice. Whatever your father once was, he no longer has the same ability or strength. I thank you for your advice, Miss Kenton. Now, perhaps you'll allow me to go about my business. Oh, I never meant to keep you from your business, Mr. Stevens. Thank you. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, voiceover artist and CEO of The Outlaw Nation, and lover of British movies that deal with an upstairs-downstairs kind of approach. So I'm very excited that we're getting into this movie, Steve. I know you wouldn't think that a son of immigrants from a South American country would find some kind of massive connection with these kinds of British people from the 1900s and and beyond. But for whatever reason, these movies just are absolutely my language, man. Um, And the movie we are talking about is today is Remains of the Day. Mm. And we are discussing it because it is a Patreon pick. John R. Merlino has requested we discuss Remains of the Day. And rather than us telling you why we think this is an interesting movie for the cinephiles, let's hear his reasons. Hi, John and Steve. This is John in Staten Island, New York. For years, I have listened to you discuss your own relationship struggles and career regrets and how difficult it is to recognize and pass on life's lessons. It's what I enjoy most about your show. When The Remains of the Day premiered in 1993, I was a college student who adored this movie and pledged to never be so devoted to work and blind to the events and people around me as Mr. Stevens. But now, decades later, being fortunate enough to be a father and husband, I sympathize with a man still fooling himself who finds out too late that he could have done things differently. Christopher Reeve gives a scene-stealing performance, daring the viewer to reach through the screen and throttle Hopkins out of his self-imposed slumber. Let's try and help him one more time. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Wow. Powerful words from John. It's good to see that this film still touches people nowadays because this is one that could get lost, but there are some people who still love this film, me included. So I'm very happy that John does, and he suggested it for us to talk about on the show. Do you remember how you first came to Remains of the Day? Oh, yeah. I couldn't wait to see this one. I mean, this is Hopkins at the height of Hopkins mania. This is Emma Thompson coming off of Henry V, coming off a couple other films that I'd seen her in, British films, Peter's Friends, I think, uh, which was the Brana, uh, one of Brana's uh, films. And I just I really so... like that movie. I haven't seen yeah. it forever, but I really like Peter's Friends. It's a cute little movie. And also Dead Again, 
people forget about Denikin, oh, yeah. which was after uh, Henry V as well. But either way, I, I was so excited about this. Plus, I have a, as as Steve knows, and as the, the many of you listening know, I am an Anglophile. I love British things, and like this was the first thing I had seen that had some semblance of the old seventies. I think seventies show upstairs, downstairs. So I was so into seeing this and I couldn't wait to go see it. And yes, I will admit it fully. There was a bit of snobbery on my part because I didn't have any friends who wanted to go see this movie with me at the time. And I felt a bit above them that I could appreciate a film like this. And it was everything I could have wanted in more. I think I went back three more times to see it and even revisiting it again for our, um, our uh, podcast. I was so incredibly happy to watch this film and uh, enjoy, if you can say that word, the uh, relationships and the, I don't know, and the subtlety that is going on here in this film, the very powerful subtlety going on in the film. First of all, just in my opinion, you were superior to all those other people <laughs> that didn't want to go to see. That seems obvious to me. Um, <laughs> <It's good>. uh, <laughs> I, I saw I it. I saw it in the theater in Lafayette, California, where Karen and I, that was where we first shacked up together right after we started dating. And uh, so I saw it there. I remember just sobbing in the theater when I saw it. And in particular, there's this one scene that I've never forgotten. I think I've only seen it once or twice since then. I hadn't seen it in a really long time. Um, There's a really interesting thing about the people that came together to make this film. Oh, please. The first one, of course, is Kazuo Ishiguro, who is the Nobel Prize winning author of the film. He is a fascinating person. He was born in Nagasaki in 1954. So that's nine years after the atomic bomb. And then he was raised in England and he was a a choir boy, apparently had an angelic voice. But the musicians he loved were folk musicians. He loved Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen. He went from being a grouse beater for the queen mother at Balmoral Castle. Wow. A grouse beater is the person, for those of you who don't know, is when you're going out to hunt your grouse, you'd have a bunch of servants making noise and banging so the grouse would fly off the ground so the queen mother could shoot one. So that was his first, that's like he's a teenager. And then he goes off to the United States because he wanted to be a singer songwriter, <laughs> a folk singer. So he hitchhiked around the US with long hair in the summer of love with a guitar on his back, ended up in Berkeley, hate Ashbury. He was living the full hippie lifestyle. So we have a guy born in Japan who had been a beater for the Queen Mother, a choir boy, now a hippie, traveling around the u.s and then it gives up on being a singer songwriter although he does write lyrics that are for for i forget who who does his songs and then becomes writes this book about the perfect english butler as british a book as you could possibly imagine um and what he thought was that he says by the way he knew nothing about butlers (laughs) nothing at all um and he but he thought it was the perfect metaphor to show a wasted life, wasted both emotionally and politically. That's what he said. Wow. Um, Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, I will say this. It did did strike me in a political way watching it this time around. But yes, go ahead. Sorry, Steve. uh, Yeah. Uh, uh, James Ivory read the book, loved it, tried to get the rights, couldn't get the rights. Columbia had already bought it, uh, and they had hired 
Harold Pinter to write the script, one of the great playwrights of all time. And they brought on Mike Nichols to direct. So Mike Nichols is going to direct a Harold Pinter script. Originally, he wanted it was going to be Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep. And Nichols had a fantastic relationship with Meryl Streep, had worked with her in a bunch of movies. They were good friends. And then the decision is made. uh, He's in the middle of doing Wolf. Um, and he just doesn't have the time. And so then they call up Merchant Ivory and say, hey, are you guys interested in? And James Ivory's like, yeah, this is what I want (laughs) want to do when the book came out. And here's the thing. Mike Nichols is the child of German immigrant Jews. He just managed to escape the Holocaust. He was born in 31 and escaped in 39 Hmm. to New York. So we have Ishiguro, who was born in Japan, raised in England, travels around, wants to be a hippie folk singer. We have Mike Nichols, born in Germany, um, becomes a huge comic, and then a Broadway director, and then a film director. And now I didn't really know anything about Merchant and Ivory, other than having seen their movies. Right. So first of all, neither of them nor their screenwriter are British. None of them are British. (laughs) Even though they're just known for Howard Zen and Room with a View, these incredibly British films. So James Ivory, born in Berkeley. He could have been. He could have been there when when wow. Ishiguro showed up as a hippie. Who knows? Wow. Um, and he uh, decides he wants to be a filmmaker. And he meets Is- Ismail Merchant in '61. Mm-hmm. Now, Ismail Merchant is born in India. Yeah, he saw one of James Ivory's documentaries. They say, "Hey, you want to make a film with me?" And they start making films. Ivory had never made a, a theatrical film, a drama. They are the, not only are they the longest independent film partnership in the history of cinema, they made movie together for 40 years and they had made 40 films together. Wow. But here's because I didn't know anything about them and I can't believe I didn't know that. They're also a couple. Oh, I didn't know that. I knew Ismail was Indian. I did know James Ivory was and born in Britain, but I did not know they were a couple either. Wow. Okay. They had they were in a relationship from the time they met until Merchant's death in 2005. That's incredible. Isn't that crazy? And I never knew that. Yeah. And then we have their screenwriter who they worked with over and over again. Her name is Ruth Proward Jahabavala. She was born in 1927 in Germany, Jewish, Dad was arrested by the Nazis for being a communist. She was there for Kristallnacht, and she fled Germany the same year Mike Nichols did in 1939. She fled to England. She lived through the Blitz. Her dad committed suicide, and she married an Indian man, Cyrus Jahabavala, which is a name I obviously can't say, and she (laughs) moved to India to become a novelist, and she wrote novels in Hindi. She won the Booker Prize, and she met Merchant in 1963. And so right after they started making movies together, and she basically wrote almost every one of their screenplays, wow. um, including Room with a View and Howard's End. So which she won, and she won an Oscar for Room with a View and an Oscar for Howard's End. So she won mm-hmm. two Oscars. So we have the Japanese guy raised in England, folk singer who writes a, a British a novel. We have Mike Nichols, the German Jewish comedian producer Mm -hmm. we have james ivory born in berkeley married to or in a a couple with they were never married ismail merchant from india and then we have the jewish german holocaust survivor who married an indian man lived in india and they are writing the quintessential british drama and i just what so (laughs) blows my mind about this is that they're all outsiders 
Right. They're, they're yeah. all out of place. They're all people that had to live in worlds where they didn't quite fit in. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that just makes so much sense for making this movie about mm -hmm. Mr. Stevens yeah. and Miss Kenton. Well, sometimes from looking from the outside, you're able to see it in a way that people inside or too close to it can't. And so um, that's a powerful thing. So many, how many, uh, there have been great uh, filmmakers from uh, who are immigrant filmmakers who've made incredible films about America. So it's Absolutely. like, it's, it's no different. You're just, you're able to remove yourself a little bit from the situation. And certainly um, uh, the novelist uh, had experience with royalty. So that certainly could have leaned on that a little bit to actually create the atmosphere of the book, you know, so because these lords and ladies at the time were kind of mini royalty. So the, the, the approach or the vibe or the atmosphere is, is kind of relevant or it's the same, similar. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Ishiguro, who's a fairly young guy when this was starting off, was very honored to be like, wait, the guys that made the movies about E.M. Forrester and Henry James, <laughs> like, they're making my book? That's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, the budget was $11 million, which is not Jesus. a big budget. Wow. It was entirely shot on location. None of this is a set. There are no sets in this. Every single house, every interior, that's all real places. <laughs> Would you like to get into Remains of the Day? Let's do it. Let's do it. So we start off with just a picture of Darlington Hall, and then we sort of through an iris, we go into a car that's driving on a beautiful country road, and we begin hearing a letter. Dear Mr. Stevens, you will be surprised to hear from me after all this time. You have been in my thoughts ever since I heard that Lord Darlington had died. There's so much incredible language in it. It's going to be tempting for me to say all of it, and I'm going to really try to restrain <laughs> myself. But what we hear, basically, it's a letter from Emma Thompson's character, Miss Kenton or Mrs. Benz, to Mr. Stevens, the Anthony Hopkins character. And she's just reminiscing about the time a long time ago. She thought about her years at Darlington Hall after Lord Darlington died. And we hear that the no one wanted to buy this big estate, and they were going to tear this whole place down. And we cut to an auction, mm -hmm. and there sitting at the auction is Christopher Reeve. Yeah, yeah. Um, who's great in this movie? One of those rare uh, movies that isn't a Superman movie where Christopher Reeve really stands out. You know, there, are, there aren't there are that many, Steve. Somewhere in time, yeah. um, was it Sleuth, the one he did, where it, I think that was one as well. And then uh, like, he's in Noises Off. He's in Noises Off, right, right. Yeah, there are a few um, others. It, it, he apparently was in The Bostonians, which is another Merchant Ivory oh, film, yeah. which I, I had not, I've never seen. Um, and he was at the premiere of Howard's End, and he was apparently sitting behind Merchant and Ivory. And after Howard's End ended, Christopher Reeve went up to him and said, listen, any part you have in your next movie, don't care what it is, I want to be in your next movie. And they're like, well, we don't really know. And then they suddenly realize, oh, we have the perfect part for you. Yeah. And that is how he became uh, Congressman Lewis. Yep. Well, let me um, clarify. Sorry, it's not Sleuth. It's it's uh, it's uh, uh, Death Trap. That's the one. Which Death Trap, similar, yes. Right, from oh, I remember that movie. Ladies. Good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he has been like crazy for some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> to, you know, we're seeing these beautiful paintings and things like that. And we hear that there's this American that in the letter that, oh, American millionaire saved Darlington Hall. And she wonders if it's the same Congressman Lewis who was there in 1936. Yeah. Um, and we see Hopkins 
in this beautiful mansion, this British country house, opening the windows. By the way, I love when he plays the older version of himself, the mm. way he sort of juts his chin out. Mm -hmm. Like he does all these little things that, because there's not a lot of makeup. Yeah. No. Very minimal makeup. And yet yeah. he manages to convey age and world weariness so beautifully. And there's just these beautiful bits of direction. Yeah. We see Anthony Hopkins walking through this room and there are three butlers, other butlers sitting waiting. And as he walks by, they disappear. It's just a nice um, foreshadowing of what this film is going to do. Constantly jump back and forth in time. Uh, and both Hopkins and Emma Thompson do a fantastic job aging as the film goes along in the, um, we see them age into their roles. The makeup is exquisite. The body yeah. positioning, the acting, the movements, as you said, great to notice the chin jutting out. That's him still trying to be on top of everything and yeah. feel like he can handle. And he becomes, we'll get to it, but in essence, he starts to become his father by the end of the oh, movie. Totally. Uh, or not by the end, but in certain moments of the, uh, showing him older in years uh, in the movie. So, yeah, you love that. In the seven years since I last wrote to you, I have again left my husband. And sad to say, my marriage seems to be finally over. And then there's this moment where, as we're hearing that, he is looking through this circular window in a door. And we see Emma Thompson come around the corner and is walking straight towards us and in a very, very slow dissolve. She disappears. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think she haunts this house for Stevens. Well, she haunts Stevens. Yeah. She haunts I, Stevens. Yeah. I don't think he can take a step in this house that he doesn't think of her. After she arrives, she is a constant in his mind and will be until the end of his life. And you see it. The house has moved on. He has not. And um, as we're going to find out in the scene in a few seconds or a few minutes, um, he takes this opportunity when she, he here we, we hear that she's left her husband to think that he could bring her back into service and repeat what they had done, what we're going to see that they had done in their younger years. The, we end up at breakfast, and there's uh, Christopher Reeve eating breakfast, and Stevens pockets a piece of burnt toast. <laughs> and unfortunately, Lewis, his boss, notices it. Burned again? Yes, I'm sorry, sir. The, um, the rule in the kitchen here, sir, has always been that cook cooks the cooked breakfast while her assistant toasts the toast. And the way I think they're toasting the toast is like over an open fire or something. Yeah, yeah basically that. <laughs> And, and Lewis is like, well, why don't you just get a toaster, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and Stephen's very traditional says, said, well, we need not a new gadget, but a revised staff plan, sir. And then we hear, just as you say, he's going to take a trip into the country and he might have a solution to this. Former housekeeper at present living in Clevedon has indicated to me, sir, that she might be prepared to return to service. What's this, your girlfriend? <laughs> And this is one of ma many times where you watch Hopkins, who's one of my favorite actors of all oh, time, yeah. do react to something in the smallest and yeah. subtlest of ways. Like, it, yeah, his performance is stunning. Ladies and gentlemen, what you need to understand is the difference between film acting and theater acting are two, are, are, it's, it's a Grand Canyon. It's literally a Grand Canyon. Film acting, you have to understand that the most 
limited movement can can speak volumes whereas on stage there's a little more of trying to reach the people in the back so they understand doesn't mean you you overdo it or anything it's just a different approach hopkins so mastered the medium of film swinging into the 80s and through the 90s and of course onward but this was where he really kind of made people stand up and take notice of his talent because he'd been acting since the late 60s. I mean, Lion in Winter, for God's sake. So it wasn't till this kind of turn in the late 80s into the 90s that these these projects really took advantage of his talent. And he had grown as as an actor on film that he understood how to play this part and give it such nuance in the little movements of his eyes or his face. And it was just brilliant to watch him work again when I watched it again. I, I was going to say this later, but since you brought mm. this up, this is what this is what Anthony Hopkins says about film acting. Mm. He says, "Your job is to walk around very quietly and be still. You <laughs> yeah. you don't add anything; you subtract. Yeah. Less is more. Just say your lines." A lot of actors don't like to hear that. A lot of yeah. actors have trouble with that, but that's absolutely true. Absolutely. Well, I think there's styles of acting because, like mm. you know. That's certainly not how Al Pacino is acting in, you know, <laughs> Scent of a Woman or in, you know, a Scarface or something. Yeah. Like, that's not, you know, there are performances that aren't like that. But right. for what Anthony Hopkins is doing, you know. But I would argue what we just finished with Godfather, and I know you're, you're loath to go back in there, but Michael, in yes. some of those steely, quiet moments in two and, and one and two, is doing kind of what Hopkins does here. Uh, with just the little cock of the head or the movement, it's it's incredible, you know? And so, yeah. And so we see Anthony Hopkins drive away in this unbelievably gorgeous car. Yeah. <laughs> with Christopher Reeve taking pictures as he as he goes. Mm-hmm. Um, his character is really interesting, by the way. I, I love I love Chris Reeve in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, they had to shoot this scene of him driving on the same day they shot the auction because... Uh-huh they could only afford to rent the period cars for one day. <laughs> and that's this thing that people don't understand about filmmaking. It's like you had to sketch. So that means that they had to schedule the locations yeah. right near each other. That means that they had to make sure what time of day they finished. They probably did the driving in the morning because it was more exterior and mm-hmm. the auctions, you could fake the lighting more. So they did that in the afternoon. You know what I mean? There's so many things that just like, we can only afford these cars one day. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is Ben. Will you permit me once again to sing your praises? Let me state that when you left us to get married, no housekeeper ever managed to reach your high standard in any department. I want to say real quick, the groundwork is being laid here for the entire movie. And I know I, we, I mentioned it earlier, the idea of jumping back and forth. the time. That's more of a technique, right? But yeah. what the feeling, the vibe, the sentiment of this movie is progress. And the people who are left behind by this progress and if you watch down it's so funny to watch this movie after having seen downton abbey because downton abbey chronicles the changes between the servants and their masters well lack of a better term lords or ladies and the servants of the house um as the years progress right and in this movie uh, we are seeing two different time gaps right the time before world war ii uh and then the time uh, a little bit after and how Things had changed. World War II changed everything for so many countries. And this idea of separation between the lower classes and the upper classes became something that the lower classes felt very angry about and pushed back on uh, even more so than in times past. And it affected across the world. And so what we're seeing that here. But we're also seeing 
how hop how uh um how a Stevens Mr. Stevens communicates with Miss Kenton, how Miss Kenton communicates with Mr. Stevens. Um subtly, between the lines, underneath everything I'm saying is my love for you, yet I can't express it in an overt way. Uh and this is what we're going to see is the pattern throughout the whole movie and the tragedy of the whole movie, even from the beginning. That's one of the weird things that I was thinking about as we're going to approach doing this episode is that we could explain everything that happens and say all the lines (laughs) and you wouldn't understand what this movie was Mm -hmm. because almost nothing that is important is ever said. Nope. You know, it's all it's all in subtext. Yeah, it's all in looks and postures and and tone. And Mm -hmm. it, it, it it's so interesting, by the way. This movie, I reread the book. Uh, oh, it's not not a terribly long book. It's it very much follows the book. The Whoa. book and the movie are very very similar, mm. uh, structurally similar. It's a lot of the dialogue is just straight out of the book. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things, and I'll get into it as we go, is that the tone is oh so subtly different. Mm. The book is way darker. In the sense, even though all the same stuff happens, right? Because the whole book is narrated by Stevens, it's his thoughts as he's on this drive to go see this woman that he, you know, we realize he's always been in love with, is that it's him reminiscing. And what what Ishiguro said is that he was interested in the process of people sifting through memories, trying to make sense of things. Mm. (laughs) And that's what Stevens is doing. And because you're in his head, Mm -hmm. he is such a sad. He's so delusional about his life or he's holding on so hard to these ideas and to not face what his life really is. And so it's a very, it's, it's a very painful book to read. And I wonder if, you know, writers are driven to write from something inside. And I would love to know what Ishiguro was working out within himself that, that spawned this book, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, because I go to this kid who's born in Japan who mm. moves to England and what, again, it's what you said before. It's the observer and the, mm. Mm. you know, feeling disconnected. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, but that's what I would assume. But does he and, feel he wasted his life pursuing being a, a, a singer or songwriter and never succeeding in that yeah. level? I wonder. Maybe. But anyway, yeah. Um, and now we see our first real vision of the past because we mm. go back to darlington hall at a hunt and there are all these guys on horses and we see lord darlington for the first time which is james fox who's incredible in this film yes yes absolutely fantastic and by the way so they had a very hard time finding locations for this movie they went all over england all over ireland most of these giant houses have either been torn down wow turned into like apartments or hotels or gift shops or museums like Actual houses that are still as they were are really hard to find. And the National Trust, which operates all these places, really didn't want a movie crew there. Mm -hmm. So, like, they get to this house. They only shot the exterior of this place. And Ivory goes, well, we need to open up the door and open up the shades. And and the National Trust people say, you will not open up the door. (laughs) You will not touch. You can be in front of the house. That's it. And apparently, Ismail Merchant is very charming. Now. Apparently, he gets people to give them stuff for no money or break the rules all the time. <laughs> it sounds like Ivory and Merchant are a fantastic team. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Would you ever have wanted to go on one of these hunts? 
to go on a fox hunt? Steve, I'm telling you. I, I said I, I was. I watched it this morning in bed while Lindley was sleeping next to me, and I ro- and I she rolled over. She's like, "This is so boring. This movie." I'm like, "I can't explain it to you, but I love this time. I have a connection to this time for whatever reason." And I said, "I think either I was a lord or I was a butler in a past life in one of these houses or something or a footman." Because I love this time. I love the visuals of it. And I know, look, I, I know, I, I hate the rich in our country, but for whatever reason, I love the old rich in the Brit, in the British, uh, British, uh, the UK. And this moment of the fox hunt, I would love to be out there with a fox hunt on the horse and, you know, pip pip and all that shit. It would be fantastic. <laughs> for whatever reason, I can't explain it. I have an organic love of that kind of thing. I can't explain it. I, I'm... I love the era too. And I love kind of how the world works. The whole Fox hunt things like, wait, we got like a bunch of guys on horses and like 20 dogs. And we're going to chase down one poor little Fox. It seems like a, it seems like a mismatch. Um, Right. But it's also a subtle character thing about uh, James Fox's character because he didn't want to go on the hunt. He He hates these hunts. So this is a guy that already is presented in a way that is a little softer of sensibility, softer of hearts, a little more sympathetic, a little more kinder. And that is what gets manipulated by the Germans uh, as the movie goes along. Well, it's so the, the, the delusionalness of, mm. uh, of the ruling class mm-hmm. or their inability to see certain elements of reality. Right. Cause I think you're exactly right about him. He is a very gentle person. He mm-hmm. is, he, he, his motivations are all compassion and he mm-hmm. does a bunch of stuff that's not not good, right? You know, um, and, and I love to. You just see this sea of servants with, you know, drinks and things that they're handing out. And there's even this moment where we have Stevens, Anthony Hopkins character, holding a drink to a guy on a horse, just who's completely ignoring him. I love that, you know, because and and that's fine. That yeah. is as it should be. Stevens is his job is to hold the drink. It's yeah. the, it doesn't matter whether or not they take it. It's a great job um, I ever issued that little moment, yeah. And then we hear in Stephen's letter to that he fears he must he can remember when she first showed up, mm-hmm. and he fears he must have been a little unwelcoming. Uh, if two members of staff happen to fall in love and decide to get married, there is nothing one can say. But what I do find a major irritation are those persons who are simply going from post to post looking for romance. And this is a real problem, John, that happens with servants, as you know. Well, of is, course romance comes in and that's very bad <laughs> listen <laughs> when you're stuck in a one place for your entire life this is all you have to choose from so eventually yeah. you will find somebody to feel something for well it, what's so funny is it's the it's it, well, this is what the whole movie's about is the subjugating of self to yeah. the profession Good point. and so in my mind like when 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 i did the assistance mm-hmm. there were two marriages that came out of that production you know, oh, two wow. people who met on the set who fell in love and got married. That's awesome. Like that right. just makes me feel great as the director. Like, oh, I'm so glad that that happened for you. In this world, that distracts from you doing the job you are supposed to do. And therefore, that is a betrayal Yes, to fall in love and get married. I know from my own experience how a house is at sixes and sevens once the staff start marrying each other. Emma Thompson is so good in this movie. And... Her nervousness in this scene and the you know her trying to show that she's she's on his side is great. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Um, we end up in the library. This is, they shot, by the way, in five different houses, you know, so different oh, rooms in different houses. Um because you couldn't get everything you wanted in one place. Right. Um, so like the back stairs, all the servants quarters and hallways and stuff that's in one place. This library is in another place. This was the one room that the literal Lord who owns this house said they could not shoot in. They was like, mm. this is my private library. You can shoot in the other rooms. We can't shoot here. <laughs> and Ismail merchant convinced him <laughs> to let them shoot there. Um, and in comes Anthony Hopkins to say that he's hired this very qualified woman, Miss Kenton, and that he also needs to replace the under butler and that there's this gentleman of a, with a lot of experience of a certain age who was a butler in his own right and now needs no longer has a place. Name? That's Stevens, sir. Stevens? Yes, sir. That's your name. This is my father, sir. In any other reality, you would say that first. Yeah, right. And and even the way he speaks to his father and the way he speaks about his father is so formal throughout this whole film. Yeah. And the Lord says, we well, couldn't do better. Stephen says, well, he's outside the door and we're going to bring him in. And there was a debate on the set whether or not the butler, the older Stephen Sr., should shake the Lord's hand. Oh, yeah. And the actual Lord whose library this is, is, mm-hmm. is sitting there watching the shoot. And he said, absolutely not. Wow. They would never shake hands. Mr. Stevens, how do you do? My lord. This guy's great casting. Yeah, this is Peter Vaughn. If you've seen Game of Thrones, he was Master Eamon in Game of Thrones. Mm. And so this he's been working for such a long time, like such a long time, and he's perfect here. Aged, they aged him up a little bit more to take on this role, uh, and he's just exquisite, man. He's exquisite in this in this role and looks like Anthony Hopkins Totally. has great back and forth with him, you know, and certainly if you're going to go toe-to-toe with Anthony Hopkins, having a fantastic resume uh, makes it feel like you can, you know, like kind of play his dad and, and his superior in a way. So he gives no quarter throughout their interactions through the whole movie. The resistance in this film to the actual expression of human feeling yeah. 
is so profound. Very good man here, your son. I don't know what we'd do without him. Proud of him, are you? Very proud, my lord. Quite right, too. It, it is formally saying the thing that you're supposed to say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than saying what you think, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and that's like this whole movie. Mm-hmm. Even walking upstairs with dad, you can see dad's old. Yep. The foreshadow breath. There. He's yeah. slow. And we see Stevens looking out the window and he watches Emma Thompson walk on this beautiful lawn. And already we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Miss Kenton goes out and cuts some ferns and some flowers. And she comes to his parlor, to Stevens's parlor. Mr. Stevens, I thought these might brighten your parlor a little. And rather than saying thank you, he says. But I regard this room as my private place of work and I. I prefer to keep distractions to a minimum. So, wait, certainly flowers are not a distraction, Mr. Stevens. <laughs> I love that. But, but, but the thing is, is like, she is the flower. She, she is, is the, the distraction. Yes, she is. He, I had a perfect world set up until you showed up with your your femininity and your woman's and your wiles and your good looks and you're messing up my perfect world, right? And it's so brilliant how that plays, how that's all bubbling under the surface as they're having this interaction. But what's so sad is the perfect world's not perfect. Well, of course not. But he, it's an empty world. I mean, it well, and maybe it is perfect. Maybe that is exactly it. It is perfect. Perfect for him. It is cold and rigid and perfect. Every, and he knows where everything goes and it yeah. keeps him. Yeah. And then he asks. I happened to be uh, walking past the kitchen yesterday morning and I heard you calling to someone named William. May I ask who it was you were addressing by that name? Why, Mr. Stevens, I should think I was addressing your father. Oh. May I ask you to address him as Mr. Stevens or Mr. Stevens Sr. so as not to confuse him with me? (laughs) The horribleness of Stevens and condescension and nastiness and the... Really? You think that? You think that that's what he is? Really? Okay. All right. He says, he says... Miss Kenton, if you would stop to think for a moment, you would realize that... How inappropriate it is for one such as yourself to address as William, someone such as my father. What he's doing here, he's he's an emotional infant, honestly. Yes. And so, if you judge him by a normal, level-headed, you know, person who's aware of his emotions, he is absolutely a condescending jerk. But he's doing this because he doesn't have the tools to communicate in a way that's respectful to her, and he's also kind of subtly upset that he has these feelings for her. And so he's trying to, in a way, destroy her so that he doesn't have to feel that way. And none of it works throughout the whole movie. She pushes through all of it throughout. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he's an overtly unkind man. I just think he's an emotional infant. And um, yeah. unfortunately, she has to deal with that. So you're, you're right in that respect, Steve, though, for sure. I, I think it's, I think what it is, is because I agree with you, is yeah. that it's, we see how she takes it. We see oh, yeah. how insensitive right. to her that he is. Well, and it's also what's so interesting about this movie. This guy takes so much of his status from placing himself in a position of low status. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like well, he's the, the butler is the lord of the service. Exactly. In a way, yeah, yeah. Good point. He's the yeah. lord of the servants. Mm-hmm. You know, and so and so his if his father is being called William. And he is the son of his father. Well, that demeans his status. Right. You know, absolutely. Um, 
and, and but she is just pissed. I love yeah. I love pissed Emma Thompson. <laughs> well, I'm sure, Mr. Stevens, it must have been very galling for your father to be called William by one such as myself. <laughs> and then right, to make it even worse, she's like, you could learn many things from my father. Oh, God. Yeah. And then she just kind of is like, oh, I'm sure. And this is mansplaining, right? Now that we look at it, this is mansplaining oh, totally. in essence. And uh, yeah, she has her uh, retort back to him and then walks out. And I love this reaction from Stevens. He tries to stop her. And then he goes, huh. <laughs> and then takes a sip away. Yeah. It's just like, oh, so him trying to reclaim his manhood in that moment. As clumsily as Thor does in Ragnarok when that ball bounces <laughs> off the window and hits him in the face, you know? Uh, so I love it. First of all, again, only on the cinephiles <laughs> you get that particular comparison. I, I can't even begin to describe all the things that Anthony Hopkins does. Mm. I don't even know what they are, but you're totally right. That moment, there's a little laugh and he takes the drink and there's so much in it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Emma Thompson, A, is hilarious. She's oh, yeah. on the commentary track. Oh, and uh, she's really fun. It's not the greatest commentary track, but okay. but she is a delight. Oh, Jesus, I got to <laughs> listen to her commentary on this. She's so funny. This is what she she said. She hated that hairstyle. <laughs> First of all, it took like two hours to get it right, and then she had to sleep in curlers with a corduroy hat every night to not mess <laughs> it up. And she described herself with that hair as the least sexy object on the sh- on the set, and she says that hairstyle destroyed her sex life for three months. <laughs> She was married to Braun at the time. That's, that's oh, I guess point. that's true, right? Yeah. Well, um, I, I think she's absolutely beautiful in this movie. Me too. Hairstyle or not, she's radiant throughout. And I would disagree with her that she's not sexy in the movie. She has a, a sexiness to her as a, as totally. a powerful woman. You know? um, every little glimpse of how this house works is fascinating to mm. me because mm. it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and we're at the servant's table with Stevens at the head and... There we have uh, Under Butler, who is the up-and-coming Under Butler, Charlie Ben Chaplin. Ben, ben Chaplin, a young Ben Chaplin, yeah. I like to be a butler, to be called Mr. and not Charlie, and sit in my own pantry by my own fire, smoking my cigar. And we talk about what makes a great butler. And without hesitation, Mr. Stephen Sr. says, dignity. Mm. And then he tells this story. Who is this English butler in India? One day, he goes in the dining room, and what's he see under the table? A tiger. He goes straight to the drawing room. (laughs) Excuse me, my lord. And whispering so as not to upset the ladies. I'm very sorry. There appears to be a tiger in the dining room. Perhaps his lordship will permit use of the 12 balls. And they hear three shots, which in India is very common, and then the butler comes back to refresh the teapots, he says, cool as a cucumber. Dinner will be served at the usual time, Lord. And I am pleased to say there will be no discernible traces left of the recent occurrence by that time. <laughs> and everyone laughs at the story. This story is directly from the book. It's exactly mm. from the book. I think this story is the heart of the entire movie. Okay. Explain. The butler who has to face the tiger. Yeah but does it without any emotional response and without any inconvenience to the Lord. That yeah. is the height of this profession. That Great is the point. goal. Great point, man. And I think we're going to see him deal with his versions of the tiger under the table multiple times in this yeah. movie. 
I think this is also a window into their relationship as father and son. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a terrible father, by the way, to have created a son that is so emotionally repressed, such an emotional infant. And then to have that deathbed convention later on, what a, what a terrible mental fuck you as well. But like this moment, he probably is when he was younger, like Stevens commanding the table. Um, yep. And the fact that now that he's older and Stevens, he can be a little impish. He can be a little rogue and tell this story out of turn uh, in the situation because he's taking a little bit of license with his son. He knows his son is not going to reprimand him in front of all these other people. And so it's a fascinating uh, window into their relationship and it'll keep happening as they have their interactions and as Stevens senior deteriorates. One of the interesting things about him, by the way, is his accent. Mm -hmm which is that he mm. doesn't have the high-class, sophisticated accent that Stevens has. Yeah. He's a lower-class accent. Mm. And there's some stuff in the book about that, that what was expected of a butler had changed, mm -hmm. you know, in the last 30 years. Stevens, he sounds like, which ends up happening, affecting things later on, he sounds like the upper crust. Yes. That's how he speaks. Uh, later on, Dad is sweeping the stairs. He's obviously tired or doesn't feel well. He disappears through a hidden door. There are a lot of hidden doors in these places. Um, and then here comes Miss Kenton, and she sees the broom and the dustbin, and she picks it up, and she you can see she's starting to put it away. Yeah. And then she thinks, and then she puts it back down where she found it. Yeah. Now, she knows who left it there. Yes, of course she does. But that's not what she says next, because she goes to find Anthony Hopkins and says, Mr. Stevens, yes? if you're searching for your dustpan, it is outside on the landing. My dustpan? Your dustpan. Now, she knows that he didn't leave it. She knows who did leave it, because she is trying to give him a hint. Yeah. And she's also still pissed about that other conversation where he kind of put her underneath dad yeah, in terms of status you yeah. could learn something from him he's sort of a superior person and yeah. she's like your superior person is messing up yeah and i love the next moment is that stevens goes down to the stairs and the fact that he's picking up the dustpan just when lord darlington comes down and has to hide it there's some very funny things in this movie well he stop he runs up those stairs because yeah. he knows it's his shame that he's trying to yeah. make sure it doesn't get found out yeah can, can you imagine if like leaving a thing in a place was a cause for shame like professional failure mm. you know yeah um well if you leave a top a very... secret file out you know in intelligence you do get in trouble for that that's well that sure. yeah but that is a that's not a dustpan <laughs> uh, like, in, this, in this situation it might be but yeah you're right it makes sense of course for some reason i was just reminded of the fact that yo-yo ma once accidentally left his three million dollar stradivarius cello in a taxi Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Which he got back was no oh, problem. That's good. But can you imagine that moment? <laughs> oh, I once I once left a set of Bose headphones years ago in an Uber, and it never came back to me. And I was just despondent because of how expensive those are. Yeah, I was just for, for I mean for months I was despondent at how absent-minded I was. But no, this is also what we're going to see from Miss Kenton that she is just as manipulative or just as, you know, as Mr. Stevens is, they both have their way of playing around each other or, you know, using certain moments to kind of go at each other in a way. And it's fascinating, you know, and I don't, and once again, I don't think it's a, from a negative place. It's more a matter of trying to exist in this world and function in this world and navigate it as best as she can. Well, I think they are both 
to some degree in a struggle for dominance, you know, that Stevens is trying to take the superior position to her and she doesn't, and she continues to defend her position. Yeah. Um, And that is why, that is why he's attracted to her. Right. Nobody else stands up to Stevens except the, except the people that have complete dominance over him. That's why I think the last moment of the film is the entire relationship. But anyway, we'll go forward. Um, there's a fancy dinner with some fancy Lord types and we're hearing that there's something going on with a Frenchman named DuPont and there's, <laughs> you know, whether or not he's anti-German sentiment and we're trying to set up some kind of conference. And as this is going on and we're discussing these big affairs of state, Mr. Stevens senior is serving. And as he pours a drink, he leans over Lord Darlington and we cut to an extreme close up of a nose with a drop of sweat mm. that drips. Yeah. <laughs> That's nasty. It is nasty. Um, and who is also at the table, but a very young Hugh Grant. Yes. Yes. Cardinal playing Cardinal. Yeah. Uh, and he is, this is one year before four weddings and a funeral. There's so many great young British actors in this movie and British yeah. actors overall that I, uh, you know, going back to see them as young people. Now it's kind of funny. I just don't see how we can associate ourselves now with the Germans, you know, with the Nazi party. They have actually torn up and trampled on every single treaty and seem to be a worse threat than ever to the whole of Europe, uh, not to mention their brutal dictatorship at home. And we hear just something about the Jews at the end of the scene. Yeah. One thing that is different in the book is it takes place over a much longer space of time. So it actually starts in the 20s Mm. or early 20s, fairly soon after the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, And whereas this actually, we're already in the 30s when it starts. And then here comes Miss Kenton because she has found another issue. She says, Mr. Stevens, was it your lordship's wish that the, and they use a word which is a derogatory word, but they don't mean it that way. Mr. Stevens, was it his lordship's wish that the Chinaman from the cabinet room should be exchanged with the one outside the door? Chinaman? And she wants him to come out and look and see that this thing is in the wrong place. Right. Now, does he already know that it's probably in the wrong place that she's correct yeah, yes yes does but he, he know why it's in the wrong place yes i i just think he doesn't want to surrender as you said the dominance he doesn't want to surrender ground to her well and to actually see it would mean to admit the fact that his father is not up to this job yep i will look into the matter in due course miss kenton you think it might be a fantasy a fantasy on my part due to my inexperience i'm busy in this room again she is hitting this moment in that earlier meeting where he was condescending to her and she's going to poke back at that yeah until he admits it and she goes out to wait and he closes the door and you can see he's going like how am i going to get out of this yeah uh in the book he contemplates fleeing through the french doors into the rain in order to not go outside but then he can't figure out how to get the french doors locked from the inside after he goes so he can't go that way plus it's raining out Mm-hmm. Um, and she's waiting. He peeks through the keyhole. She's still there. And then, you know, he does, he puts things in cabinets. Yeah. And then he just tries to go right past her <laughs> without looking. Yeah. Look at it. Is that or is it not the wrong Chinaman? Miss Kenton, I'm very busy. And I'm surprised that you have nothing better to do than stand around all day. I love the moment where she's like, strongly says, turn around and look. And he says, I would ask you to keep your voice down. What would they think if they heard us shouting at the top of our lungs? Yeah. They're not shouting. No, no. <laughs> but, maybe for, but maybe for that time, that is shouting. Maybe. I don't know. 
And finally, she insists he turns around, he looks, and he turns. And I love that the head is kind of bobbling. <laughs> Just makes the moment funnier. Your father is entrusted with more than a man of his age can cope with. I'm concerned for Please him. Please let me pass. Mr. Stevens, Mr. Stevens, it was your father who left the dustpan in the middle of the floor. It is he who is leaving polish on the cutlery. It is he who has confused the Chinaman. You must recognize this before he commits a major error. I'm afraid you can't talk to me like this, Miss Kenton. I'm afraid I must, Mr. Stevens. For Stevens and the ways presented in the movie... He has so many flaws, right? Why would you bring your older dad? What is this? Is this some kind of veiled attempt to show off to your father how well you've become as a butler? He never, he almost never compliments him, I think, in the movie about how good he is as a butler. And do you bring him back? And are you bringing him back to kind of maybe in an, not an evil way, but in a kind of way to get back at him, kind of rub it in his face that you're in charge now? Um, so just these, this stuff that's working underneath everything. And also her pointing out that he's messing up is an, is an indictment on his decision to bring his father in as the underbutler. So it's, it's a, uh, you're right, Steve, it's a, it's a battle for dominance throughout. And these little moments, uh, are the battlefields. You know, ironic considering he doesn't want to get into any discussion about battles or politics or whatever, right. or world wars, but on this level, he will engage, you know? I think it's a I think it's a double status move. And by that I mean it's I think it's just what you said that he wants his dad to see him as the great butler and mm. which and but I also think he th- he wants everyone else to see his dad who he has idolized on some level. Oh yeah. Like he thinks his dad is a great butler. And so the fact that dad is messing up yeah is looking poorly on him and he doesn't sure. want to face the fact that his dad isn't the person that he thought he was. Yeah. Whatever your father once was, he no longer has the same ability or strength. I thank you for your advice, Miss Kenton. Now perhaps you'll allow me to go about my business. Oh, I never meant to keep you from your business, Mr. Stevens. Thank you. And then he goes out through another secret door hidden in a bookshelf. Um, What's so crazy about the secret doors, which I didn't understand before, is that that's how to get to all the secret servant passages Mm. so that because the servants aren't supposed to be seen walking through the regular halls of the house yep so they have ways to disappear walk to the next room come out through another secret door do their thing go disappear again there's a meeting in the garden again we're talking about the arrival of dupont and we hear about congressman lewis which we know is christopher reeve is coming and they make some jokes about him his fortune apparently he's rich and this is this thing, I forget what movie we were talking about it recently, where mm. for the aristocrats, for the upper class, people who actually made money in trades were really looked down upon. Yes, new money versus yeah. old money, right. Well, and it's also people who worked for their money instead right. of inherited their money. I, th- that to me is just such a, it is the opposite of how it should be. It's like, well, it's, yeah, it's the opposite how we view it in America for sure. Yeah people who work for their money and we denigrate those who have everything handed to them because of their last name or their um wealth yeah well, and this is a, again it's a theme in this movie because we're going to get into this idea of the amateurs you know yes what these are people who believe they have the right to rule the world because of the position that they were born into not because of accomplishing anything on their own and they might be wonderful accomplished people but they could just be rich lords who were born into a situation. We um, saw in Chariots of Fire, remember when he's like, I bring the future with me. And Abrams is going against Kenjong Yogo to Lindsay Anderson. 
Yours are the archaic uh, rules of the prep schoolyard, and I bring the future with me. There's the difference, yeah. There, there, there's a lot to say on this as we get to, to it. And while they're having this conversation, we see Dad with a tray making his way towards him. And you just know that something bad is going to happen. And he trips on these pavers. He falls. He hits his head. And, what's, and they all rush out to him. And what's so messed up and sad is what is the first thing he does when he looks up into the Lord's face? Apologizes to the Lord straight up. Yeah. And what does Stevens do when he comes out? He apologizes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like this man is injured and mm -hmm. they are apologizing for his injury interfering with the Lord's perfect afternoon. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Fox is very... Once again, kind and genteel and speaks mm -hmm. to him, puts the blanket over him, says, please, you're all, it's okay. Don't don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. So, but it leads to the conversation later. So, yeah. Well, exactly. Like he, he is, he, he is a gentleman on yeah. a, you know, he does do the right things in certain ways. And he also, we'll, we'll get into it because there's yeah. some very interesting stuff coming on. Mm -hmm. And just as you say, it's later on, we're back in the library. And at first he says the right things. I hope your dad's doing better. And, and then he says... None of us wish to see anything of that sort ever happen again, do we? <laughs> oh, oh. And it, it could happen anywhere, at any time. By the way, James Fox is so good at playing awkward. Mm -hmm. He's not quite at Hugh Grant level of playing awkward. <laughs> he was like maybe the greatest awkward genius I could think of. Sure. But, he, but his way of like, I want to say this thing. I know it's a little, I'm trying to be delicate about it. And the thing is, by the way, he is right. Dad should not be doing these jobs. Yeah. Just Emma Thompson was right. That he Absolutely. shouldn't be doing these jobs. Yeah. Uh, but what he is concerned about is this big conference we're going to have. The, 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 the future of Europe is, is at stake and we can't have someone making a mistake. It could, yeah. it could literally change the course of history. And then we hear what his motivation is, which he, which Lord Darlington says, I had a German friend. We fought on opposite sides of the war. And we always said when this wretched business is over, we'd sit down together, mm -hmm. but the treaty of Versailles made a liar of me. Um, and this is true. The treaty of Versailles had incredibly harsh terms for the Germans. They had to pay back all the debt of basically every of all the allied forces. Mm -hmm. um, and it completely wrecked Germany. Yeah. And in many ways probably did lead to world war two, because if Germany hadn't been totally wrecked, mm -hmm. then it wouldn't have been so unstable that Hitler could rise. Right. So, right. so there is certainly truth there. Well, one doesn't do that to a defeated foe. No, once you've got your man on the canvas, that ought to be the end of it. And unfortunately his friend killed himself. Wow. And that is his main motivation to why he wants to make a better peace with Germany. And th and this was the motivation of a lot of people who were of a certain class in Britain. Like we look now at Neville Chamberlain and we go, oh, what, an, what a fool. But at the time, there were a lot of people who felt the way Neville Chamberlain did. A lot of people in America. Don't people, people forget Germans and the Nazis came over in the 30s to try to woo Americans, try to woo... Uh, people in the in the powerful countries, uh, an essence being sent out by Hitler and his people to see to sow the seeds of of um, dissension here and 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 push the logic that the Treaty of Versailles really messed up the German people. It was terrible towards the German people. We shouldn't have done that and play on the guilt of it. And uh, that was an effort that was done in a number of Western countries or actually, oh, sorry, first world countries, uh, you know, to drum up support for Hitler. Well, let me ask you this question. Yeah. 
if you knew nothing else and I gave you no information at all and I said, there is a country that is aggressive and we need to be aggressive with them in order to stop them. Yeah. And you know nothing else and think about American history and how many times we have said that. Yeah. Would you be for being aggressive or for more peaceful means? I think it's very difficult to speak of it in a hypothetical, right? Because I'd have to know what the parameters are around the situation, you know? If, um, if you take 10, think of like the last 15 mil yeah. uses of military force. Okay. What percentage of them do you think you would have been for? <laughs> Uh, being a former military man, a lot less than you would think, a lot less than you would think. And I, so, yeah, that's what I figured. And that'd be my answer too. in general, in my lifetime, I yeah. have been against the use of military force mm -hmm. in world war two. The use of military force was absolutely right. Hitler, yes. what was happening with, with Hitler and with Japan was these are countries trying to take over the world. You know, in the case of Hitler, you know, slaughtering millions of people in the case yes. of Japan, terrible things that they were doing in China. It was. And yet my instinct, that's why I say it's like if I know nothing, my instinct is peace. We should always yes. negotiate. We should always find ways to live together. Hmm. I don't know that I wouldn't have been Neville Chamberlain. You, you know what I know, mean? Oh, really? You wouldn't have well, been able I, to sense that this guy was that is something uh, less no, honorable behind him. Mo most people didn't know. Yeah. I mean, like, no one, I mean, like, yes, some people knew there were things going on with the Jews. A lot of people didn't. And like right now, there's horrible things going on in China with the Uyghurs, you know, you know, or Hong Kong, horrible things. Yeah. And we're not attacking them. We're right. go, we got business deals with them. Right. You know, it's like the, it, it, so I would hope, I would absolutely hope that I would recognize what Hitler was and say, no, no, this is a case. We need right. to go deal with this guy. Right. But my instincts are always towards peace. Mm -hmm. You know, that's who that's more who I am. Fair. Um, uh, uh, saying that there are beautiful landscape shots and, and cinematography in this movie is going to be redundant, <laughs> but there, there's a lot of them. Yes, there are. Um, and again, behind the scenes, the wood cellar and the kid, you know, like all the fireplaces we have to keep burning and all the washing that has to be done. This massive staff of people that have to keep this place going the way they keep it going. Right. right. Um, and then we go to find Dad, who is sitting awake in his room. I might have known you'd be up and ready for the day. I've been up for two hours. This scene is so um, brusque and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because he doesn't... And by the way, in the book, it's much worse. Oh, really? Much worse. Because Stevens is just... He doesn't call... He calls him... I was wondering if my father would, would consider this. You know, it's mm. it's such a formal... He never talks to him like a person. Yeah. And his father never talks to Stevens like a person. I've, um, I've come to talk to you about something. I'll talk then. I've got all morning. They have this totally formal relationship. And basically, he's telling him that, they, that he no longer is going to be serving at table. I've, I've waited at table every day for the last 54 years. Because this is his identity. Mm -hmm. You know, just as it's just as much as it's his sons. Yeah. And rather than react to that emotional admission, there's a pause. Again, we watch Anthony Hopkins acting just in silence. Yeah. And then he says, here's a revised list of your duties. Well, I fell because of those paving stones. A crooked. Why don't you get them put right before someone else does the same thing? It's an old man's defense, Steve. 
Yep. It's not. I'm not losing a step. No, it, it was the. You know, it was. It's not, I was uh, distracted by this or that. And then he turns it around on his son, and appeals and and tries to embarrass him by saying, "You don't want those nice lords and ladies tripping over this." Like he's immediately yeah. goes into his lower, uh, re, like you said, lower region accent or lower uh, lower class accent, and goes at him in a dig. You know, to try to take the attention away from his. Uh, clearly advancing age um, and inability to do the job like he used to be able to do. And look, everybody has this. I think most people have this reaction when it starts to fall oh, apart. Yeah. Like, no, I can still do it. And you you fucking can't. And and that's a hard thing to accept as all of us get older. Shit, there's stuff. I can't bend down with my legs. Like, I can't go down on my, uh, like I used to anymore because every time I get up, it's cracks and bells and whistles yeah. and pain in the lower back. And I'm like... When the hell did this happen? You know, so it's just crazy. I had a, I, this is off the topic, but I, I had a, a, a realization a few months ago. Yeah. Which is, I, so I haven't done Aikido in a year because, mm. you know, we don't get together and do that. Right. I've also had basically no back pain in a year <laughs> oh. and very little knee pain. Wow. And I, and I've gone, oh, I don't think I'm going to be doing Aikido because <sighs> Aikido's all falls and rolls. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. You know, it's like I could teach. And I could do right. some of it. I'm trying to negotiate in my head, like, <laughs> because walking around in really bad back pain, it sucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've heard you talk about it, bro. I know. I yeah. hear you. But that's the truth, right? It's one of the fears I have. I'm going to go back into lifting weights very soon. And one of the fears I have mm -hmm. is I'll be back in joint pain and knee issues and what have you. But, you know, it's the exchange is feeling stronger. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Emma Thompson standing out at the window. And she looks out and sees Mr. Stevens Sr. out where he fell. And she calls Stevens over. Mr. Stevens. And together they look out the window. And of course, this is the poster. This is the image of the poster. Yes. Yeah, which is great. And what they see is a man practicing walking across those pavers. Yeah. And it's such a sad image. It is. And where, where they had had the battle before, I think there's a sense in both of them in that moment that... There's almost a sympathy, a slight sympathy for Mr. Stevens Sr. and what he's doing, uh, a sadness, you know? Yeah. And then we cut to a cart and some mops, and he's explaining. Oh, Lord. Like, it's so weird. Oh. Like, oh, these are my mops. <laughs> these are my oh. brushes. Yeah. And he's digging at him. He's digging oh, at yeah. him, too. Yeah. Oh, God. And then, and then he just takes off <laughs> and yeah. starts doing stuff. Yeah. Um, now we get to. The prep for the big conference, Stevens makes a big speech about history is going to be made here. And we see these great sort of superimpositions of the work that's being done. Um, by the way, the second unit director who filmed all this montage is uh, Ismail Merchant. Oh, he shot all this wow. stuff. That's cool. Um, and we see mahogany being shined and we see beds being made and we see dead birds and bottles of wine. And, um, and a car pulls up and there's Christopher Reeve. Yes. And then Stephen goes to see Lord Darlington. And first he informs him that Congressman Lewis has arrived early. And then we get into a conversation about his godson, which, of course, is the Hugh Grant character, Cardinal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and he says, I feel very responsible for the boy. His father was my closest friend. And now that he's gone, I feel a place of a father for the boy. <laughs> and we hear that he's getting engaged. Stevens, I uh, realize this is a somewhat irregular thing to ask you to do. I should be very glad to be of any assistance, my lord. You are familiar, I take it, with the facts of life? 
A lot. The facts of life, Stevens. Birds, bees. I mean, you are familiar, aren't you? I'm afraid I don't quite follow you, sir. <laughs> Such a great. Uh, by the way, Dad is in the book. Uh, oh, Cardinal's in the book? dad oh. is not, he's alive. He's not okay. dead in the book, and okay. he passed the buck to Lord Darlington. Said, "Well, you're his godfather. Why don't you have the birds and the bees talk with him?" Jesus, so it's a double pass in the book. Here, it's only a single one, and he says, "Well, let me put my cards on the table, Stevens. I'm so frightfully busy with this conference. Of course, you're very busy too, but someone has to tell him." In a way, it would be easier for you. And, and the way Fox, uh, just, sorry, James Fox uh, kind of does this is so, you know, yes, as caring as he is of Stevens, there are certain moments where he takes advantage of the relationship with Stevens. And this is one of those moments, right? Because he, he is, it's a funny scene when you understand what the hell he's asking him to do. But it's also kind of kind of tragic, too, that he is put upon to do this by the Lord because the Lord doesn't want to do it. And later, uh, uh, when he is being asked his opinions about political affairs by those men in the room, uh, Lord Darlington doesn't stop them. And they're essentially making fun of him. And it's terrible. So there are moments where Darlington is not as civil or nice or compassionate or kind as you think he is. You know? I, I 100% agree. I think he's it's that, you know, it's the terribleness that comes with privilege. He doesn't know what he's doing is because he, he, you know, he walks in a bubble of I'm a great man, mm. you know. And yes, he he deep down knows that what he, you know, asking your butler yeah. to, to, to say the facts of life to your godson is messed up. And he yeah, knows it's agreed. messed up. And it is totally out of cowardice. Yeah. He, yeah. he is too scared and awkward to do this. So he just passes the buck. And watching again Hopkins sort of take this in um and and he doesn't resist you know he gets his job again there's a tiger under the table yeah his job is just to deal with it right you know yep, yep. good point three um, shots <laughs> yep and we go out to the garden and he startles hugh grant oh god Stevens. it's a really funny scene yes this scene is this scene is exquisite because like hugh grant is he's caught smoking uh, and they're having this back. And Hugh has so much respect for him. You can tell as, as the, you know, the characters that they're playing. And Hopkins is talking, oh, sorry, Stevens is talking all around what he's, I mean, you see him stumbling to try to have this conversation. He's trying. How can a guy who is, in, who cannot tell you his actual feelings about anything going to have a legitimate discussion about the birds and bees with a man who's probably already had multiple sexual encounters it is absolutely funny. But once again, it's this disconnect between the older generation and the younger generation, right? And he, uh, James Fox's character, Lord Darlington, believes that this conversation needs to be had before Cardinal is engaged, which is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. You know? Yeah, because Hugh Grant is not young. He's no. not a, he's not 11. <laughs> he's, a, he's an adult. Yeah. A couple of things about this. I, I, I love... Just the language that is used, all the stuff of, you know. But I do have something to convey to you rather urgently, sir. And if I may be permitted, I'll come straight to the point. Um, perhaps you will have noticed this morning, sir, the ducks and the geese by the pond. Ducks and geese. No, I don't think so, <laughs> It's just all so oh, funny. And, so the, and the other thing, here's, a, here's another question for you. Yeah. Is Stevens a virgin? St yeah, a thousand percent. He's a virgin. A thousand percent. He's the virgin. Yes, I think so too. 
So he actually doesn't know the facts of life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Right. So who is he to explain it to Hugh Grant? That's a yeah. great point. Yeah, absolutely. I love uh, Hugh Grant just can't help being funny at this oh era in his career. I'm more of a fish man myself. Fish, sir? Yes, I know all about fish, fresh water and salt. <laughs> ah. Well, all living creatures would be relevant to our discussion, sir. <laughs> Um, Do you take that in any way other than the way it's intended? Do you take that in any other way other than what's it's intended? Because, I mean, you can play it a certain way, fish. So, well, so, like, the women I have sex with and the women I marry. Like, the difference between mm. the two. I don't know if you take it that, that way or not. I never, never occurred to me. But... Salt, saltier fish versus more uh, freshwater okay. fish. I'm just saying. It's maybe different. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a lot. I will call Kazuo Ishiguro up. Yeah, and, please and do. ask him if that was symbolic. Um, and of course, what ends the conversation is that we hear that Dupont, the rep, the French representative, has shown up, and he has problems with his feet. Yes. And while he's trying to get some warm water and salt, Christopher Reeve, uh, Congressman Lewis, is trying to talk to him because he thinks this conference is going in the wrong direction. And what we've heard is that Dupont is sort of the anti-German person. That's what we've yes. heard. And Lewis yes. is trying to talk to him. More people arrive. There are more servants bringing in trunks. Um, we're at the beginning of this conference and Stevens of course is serving and they are saying, look, it's in our interest to have a strong Germany. We've been trying to keep Germany weak and you could see Christopher Reeve is not very suspicious of this. Like an American fidgeting around in his chair, wants to give his opinion, juxtaposed to Stevens who won't say a word about anything. Here's Christopher Reeve, who's kind of the anti-Stevens, who wants to, you know, tell you what he feels about it uh, overall. Again, uh, DuPont wants to, needs to soak his feet again. Again, <laughs> Lewis is trying to talk to him. You and I are going to have to do some pretty fast maneuvering back there if we want to restrain the Germans. So we know that Lewis, and from him the U.S., is concerned about Nazis and concerned about rising military in Germany. Yeah. And Stevens, of course, is overhearing some of this discussion. Yeah. And as this is going on, Stevens gets called that his father has taken ill. And so he yeah. goes and finds his father, and this is exactly as it's described in the book, hmm. at his cart, kneeling, yeah. almost frozen. Slumped, slumped over, yeah. And Hopkins, I know, I'm just going to keep saying how amazing yeah. he is in this film. Um, and he has to peel his fingers off of the cart it's to get him to let go. Such a symbolic moment, don't you think, yeah. Steve? Like Absolutely. these these people at this time, certainly Stevens's father, were essentially conditioned to work until they died, and they held that job. And a lot of people still do, Steve, in our world. I mean, my my father was going to keep working for another two years before he got cancer. Like he was, he had determined. He was determined. You know, my mom just recently retired from from cutting hair at seventy five years old. Wow. It's just that holding on because the work, in essence, becomes your meaning. Um, and the, the generations now are pushing back against that, changing that in, in some way. But for a lot of the working class, the job is meaning, you know. And so you have to essentially pry their cold, dead hands off the job um, uh, before they're willing to leave, you know. I would say, yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think it's, mm. it's beyond meaning. It's identity. It is. Yeah. This is who I am, you know, 
Yeah. It's funny. It's a conversation Karen and I have had. And I remember having this conversation with Karen's dad, Karen's mm. dad, uh, when they had fish markets, when they lived in New Jersey, right. and he would tell people, my job is a fish mark is, is as a fishmonger. Right. I'm not a fishmonger. And then they moved to California and they had a restaurant and he, he would say, my job is I run a restaurant. I am not yeah. the restaurant. That's not who I am. That's awesome. And I remember talking to me, it's like, I'm a writer. Like I so much more identify with my work, you know, so mm-hmm. maybe I'd be one of those people clutching on with my hands to this podcast, John, <laughs> you know, you can have to pry my hands off the mic or the keyboard or something. Yeah. Well, yes. I have more time than you at the moment. I'll look after him. I've called the doctor. Thank you. It's so interesting watching this very combative relationship, but how much genuine care she has for him. Yeah. And the doctor says that he's not good and that if he deteriorates, let me know. And Hopkins is left alone for a moment and he has to put himself back together because he has to go do the job. Yeah. Because there are bells ringing, people pulling cords, and servants bringing clothes, and we're chopping the head off of ducks. Which, <laughs> by the way, that is Ismail Merchant chopping the head off the duck because the woman playing the cook refused to do it. <laughs> so he did it. <laughs> we're at the table and watching Anthony Hopkins and Charlie measure exact distances for the silverware and the china and the... That's just... Crazy to me. That's the life. Yeah, that's all through Downton Abbey, by the way. I don't know if you've yeah. seen it yet, Steve. I've never watched all, it. Yeah, I know it's all, great. Those moments are all through Downton Abbey. Yeah, but by the way, they had a, a steward of the Queen of the Queen's house from Buckingham Palace was their advisor on this. Yeah, that's awesome. Trying helping them make sure everything was just right. And Stevens goes up to visit his dad. This scene is different in the book. Oh, um, interesting. So. Okay. Dad is asking how everything is going downstairs and everything's in hand. Um, he asks how he's feeling. Um, and dad says, there's something I have to tell you. Mm-hmm. And Stevens does not want to hear it. <laughs> I have so much to do, father. Why don't we talk in the morning? Jim. And this is what's not in the book. I fell out of love with your mother. I loved her once. Love went out of me. And I found her carrying on. That is not in the book. Wow. And I really wonder why, because you you said before, this is a crazy thing to admit. Yeah. At this last moment, to just mm-hmm. drop this bombshell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he says, you are a good son. I'm proud of you. And he's looking at his hands, which is what, which is definitely in the book. Yeah. I hope I've been a good father to you. Tried my best. Did he though? Did he though? Steve, I don't know if I had this moment with my dad. I don't know if you had that moment with your dad—a final conversation or whatever—and it's, it was, it's, it's. You don't want to have it because you sense that it could be the last one, yeah. and it makes it too real. So when Stevens is saying, "We'll talk in the morning," we'll talk in the morning. That's his way of delaying it. My father had to drag me into mm. his bedroom in the house before I left on the plane. To have the final conversation. I didn't want to have it. And he yanked right. me. He's like, no, we're going to talk about this. And I'm just like, ah, oh, fuck. And it broke me because he died four days later. You know, And I never spoke but to I, him again. It was oh. But I, I bet in that conversation, I mean, you've told me about it before. <laughs> yeah, he did not admit to cheating on my mom. Right. Well, A, he didn't admit to that. <laughs> and B, I bet that you were emotionally 
available no, for of him. Course. We both were. Yes. Yeah. Very much. So. What Steve, the only thing Stephen does in the movie is he touches him very gently. He tries. Yeah. He touches his hand, but just, and this is so powerful. Just when he is trying to make an emotional connection with his father, which I imagine this is a small window to numerous attempts by Mr. Stevens to have a emotional connection with his father throughout his whole life. His father immediately goes, better get downstairs. Got a lot of stuff to do. Better go do that. Don't worry about me. He's, he's immediately pushing away uh, any attempt to uh, share emotion because from a guy like that, maybe from that time, emotion is weakness. And of course, we know that's not the true, the truth nowadays. But certainly in that in that time frame, that's what was thought. And certainly in Britain. Uh, and so when he has that moment, it pushes him away. It's so ironic. Literally seconds ago, he was saying, I hope I was a good father to you. And then here's an attempt. Here's a moment where he could be. And he immediately pushes him out. It's like, oh, it's rough. So this is, I would say, the, this moment is the key difference between the book and the movie, mm. which is in the book, dad doesn't kick him out. No. Dad is trying to connect. He's the one who's trying to make the emotional connection. And Stevens is so cold to his father. Mm. And, and what's interesting, because you're in Stevens's head, and it's a very, you know, we talked about unreliable narrators in various mm. stories. It's not that Stevens is an unreliable narrator. It's that it's very uncomfortable to be in his brain because you can feel him continually rationalizing mm -hmm. everything that has happened and what in sort of making it make sense why he did what he did. Yeah. And he's so delusional about what he's, he's not delusional. He is, he is deluding himself, yeah. you know, yeah. like consciously. So it's very like frustrating in the book. He is much, I think in the movie, you have more sympathy for Stevens than you do in the book. Hmm. Yeah. In the book, it's sort of at the end, it's like, oh, this this guy is just, you know, right. it's just really sad that he didn't understand what he didn't understand anything about his whole life. We're in the dining room. There is incredible splendor. Hmm. Um, by the way, uh, one of the things uh, Hopkins asked this guy from the Queen, the butler for the Queen, do you have any advice for me? And the guy said, yes, here's my advice. When a butler is in the room, it should seem more empty than when the butler isn't in the room. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And Hopkins, and you could feel it. Like their job is to be invisible. Like, and it's funny in the, those Patrick O'Brien books that I've read many times that I love oh, yeah. when they have these dinners, there is a servant standing behind each person at the dinner, huh. you know, and they just job is to stand there and to pretend that they're not listening to everything. Right. I just can't imagine that just feels all of this feels so invasive into my space. Like, <laughs> leave me alone. I'll pick up the fork. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Just go right. away. That's, you're not um, a sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and we, there's a woman there who's German and very happy that there's such goodwill for Germany. And <laughs> Congressman Lewis is not so happy. And DuPont, our French person, stands up. The person we've heard is the most anti-German person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he surprisingly is all for it. I promise you that I shall do my utmost to change the policy of my country towards that nation which was once our foe, but is now, I may venture to say, our friend. <laughs> and everyone toasts and cheers and applause. And then Lewis reacts and he yeah. stands up. 
So this is very different in the book. In the book, this is in the 20s, not the 30s. And this mm -hmm. is Senator Lewis, who is not the same person who bought the house. Two oh, okay. different characters. Okay. And he is a drunken asshole. <laughs> okay. So as opposed to a sympathetic character. And he says, The United States doesn't want war any more than you do. On the other hand, neither would we care for peace at any price. But let's not get into that now. We may all have to soon enough. <clears throat> for the moment, let us simply raise our glasses to Lord Darlington. And everyone toasts and everyone's happy and he sits down and then he stands back up. He can't let it go, can he? Can't <laughs> let it go. And then, and I think this speech, like the Tiger story, is key to the whole movie. Yeah. Lord Darlington is a classic English gentleman of the old school. Decent and honorable and well-meaning. So are all of you here, all decent and honorable and well-meaning gentlemen. It reminds me of uh, Julius Caesar, of Mark Antony's speech. <laughs> Brutus is an honorable man. So are you all, all honorable men. And we cut to Stevens listening to this, or maybe not listening. But, now excuse me, I have to say this. You are, all of you, amateurs. And international affairs should never be run by gentlemen amateurs. Do you have any idea of what sort of a place the world is becoming all around you? The days when you could just act out of your noble instincts are over. Europe has become the arena of realpolitik, the politics of reality. What is this term, realpolitik? I hear it all the time. Or not all the time, but when I explore the idea of politics, um, do, you, do you have a definition for that in your mind when you hear the term realpolitik? My understanding is it's basically, it's not doing politics based on lofty ideals. It is the nuts and bolts, facts and okay. figures, down and dirty politics. Okay. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm looking at a definition here. It says, uh, yeah. real politics is pol or diplomacy is based primarily on considerations of given circumstances and factors rather than the explicit ideological notions or moral and ethical premises. In this respect, it shares aspects of its philosophical approach with those of realism and pragmatism. Yeah, Britannica has this realpolitik that suggests a pragmatic, no-nonsense view and a disregard for ethical consideration. So is he saying that real is what Hitler is doing, realpolitik? No care for ethics. Uh, to them, it's about survival. To him, it's about he wants to control the world. Or is he saying that I come from the actual nuts and bolts politics and I know what Hitler is doing and the way we need to deal with Hitler is not the way you guys want to do it with this idea that he is going to play by the rules, you know? And um, I sense that that's where he's coming yeah. from. Yeah. I, I think it, yeah, I think it's the latter. I think it's the, it's fine, which, you know, and this is the balance in politics between idealism and practicality. I mean, we see that that is every single day. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you can't actually rule entirely by ideals, you know? No. No. Like you have to like, there's a way to do it. You have to make compromises. You have to. And, and the thing is, is like, it would be nice to believe that Germany wants to be our friends, mm -hmm. but they don't. They're actually using you. And, and by the way, the one person that's important that they cut to is Hugh Grant's character. Yeah. He is the one who's really hearing this. You need professionals to run your affairs or you're headed for disaster. So I propose a toast, gentlemen, to the professionals. And no one else toasts. <laughs> 
And at this moment, which is very dramatic in terms of the politics, yeah. in comes Charlie. And just as Lord Darlington stands up and, and Stevens reaches in to grab his chair, Charlie says, Mr. Stevens. Yeah. And there's, and you watch again, all the at play, I'm trying to be the invisible servant. And this guy is talking to me and he probably knows what it's about. Well, I've no wish to enter into a quarrel on this our last evening together. But let me say this, what you describe as amateurism is what I think most of us here still prefer to call honor. And while he's making this speech, Charlie whispers, your father. Yeah. And I suggest that your professionalism means greed and power, rather than to see justice and goodness prevail in the world. And while this is happening, you're watching Anthony Hopkins take in what he's hearing about his yep. father. Yep. This is the tiger under the table. Now his father is the tiger. His ideal, what dignity means, is to perfectly do his job despite the tremendous personal tragedy that is happening. Despite whatever emotions he might be feeling, he must be the perfect butler. Mm. Yep. Lord Darlington goes to sit down and he pushes his chair in for him. And he leaves. And it's so, and this is what this, this movie is, this contrast between the big things, Hitler, Nazis, world politics, and the personal things, the yeah. small things, the life of your father. I want to say one thing before we go to the okay. next scene and dad. The idea of the Lord the saying, you're talking about greed and power. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is <laughs> the class of people who have ruled by inheritance for centuries. Of course. Who literally surrounded by servants doing their every bidding, deciding things of the world. And this is what's, what do you think you guys are all about? Yeah. What is the British Empire? Like, come on. The thing is, when you're born into it, it's hard to see that this is that there's a hypocrisy in the words that you're saying, because this is how it's always been. So why is this wrong? What I'm doing, you know? So, but yeah, I'm certainly there were lords who bristled against that idea at, at the time, but certainly James Fox is not one of them. And no. and as we hear earlier, as we heard earlier, it is because of his friend and his friend's suicide. It is a right. misguided attempt to make up to his friend what happened to him and somehow he takes the responsibility for his country for that and it's that's feel that's uh feeling yourself to be more important than you actually are you know yeah yeah it it's so yeah there's a expression i know i've said on the show before this comes from hoover my partner on the documentaries who says i don't know who invented water but it certainly wasn't a fish (laughs) that's great and that, and this is the thing they, you know, this is the water the Lord swims in. He swims in a world of power and privilege and everyone kowtowing to him all the time. That's his, yeah. and that everything that he says must be the right thing. It must yeah. be the important thing because, and this is the difference with Lewis and professional politics, I think, is that it's not because of what he has done or what his skills are. It's because of who he was born to be. Mm-hmm. Stevens, I'm very sorry. Your father passed away four minutes ago. Oh, I see. No emotional reaction. Come up and see him. I'm very busy at the moment, Miss Kenton. In a little while, perhaps. And then I just think this is an amazing line. Will you permit me to close his eyes? I would be most grateful, Miss Kenton. Thank you. 
do you think that she knew that he wouldn't go up to see his father? It's a good question. Um, I imagine she probably suspected it was a possibility. It's a busy night. It's an important night. Um, she has had enough exposure to him to understand that he's an emotionally repressed person, or at least maybe conceive of the concept that he's emotional. I don't know how well people were aware of that back then, but certainly to conceive of it, maybe. Um, but no, I don't think she expected him to go up, to be honest with you. Not until later. Uh, yeah, I don't think she did either. And mm. he says, that would be most grateful. Thank you. And she starts to go. And then he stops her and says, uh, this can't my father would wish me to carry him with my work. I can't let him down. First of all, do you think that's true? Do you think his father would have wanted him to carry on with the work? I think I think he believes that. I do. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is it right or not? I don't know. But I think he believes that. But then remember earlier in the scene, he said, there's a lot of people waiting on you. Go down there. Go down there. So maybe. I, I kind of think he might have because his father's the guy who told the tiger story. Right. And his you father know? doesn't want everybody to make a fuss about him either. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right, too. It's so funny. And I remember having this thought when I first saw it and when I first found out this was written by a Japanese guy or a Japanese British guy, is that there's something about Stevens that reminds me of the samurai, is that oh, everything is about duty. You know, whatever yeah. the Lord says you got to do, all honor comes from you doing what you are told to do to right. fulfill this role. And right now he is putting his personal tragedy aside to serve his Lord, you know, in the way that he's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's the German woman is singing, by the way, she could not lip sync to the music because you, you know, the music is pre-recorded and she just couldn't do it and to couldn't get it in sync. And as soon as they said that, and I watched it again, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is not, they, they could yeah. never quite make it work. Um, <laughs> Lewis is not into it. No. Hugh Grant is not into it. Um, but Lord Darlington is very moved and Stevens yeah. is there and there's moments where he's almost frozen, yeah. you know, there's moments where you could see him overwhelmed by the emotions and just frozen in space. And then he snaps to life. Yeah. Fulfilling the role. His father died. This is the thing. Yeah. As we watch these scenes, Steve here now in this, in this, in this section of the movie, I know what it's like to walk to 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 walk in a daze. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Trying to do the normal things after your father has passed, or you get the news that your father has passed. He is doing that. He is trying to keep it together, but this is his actual emotion bursting through, and he is struggling with it for the first time. We see for real his his struggle with the emotion of because it's such a cataclysmic event. It, it, it's a, there's certainly times where there's been a huge thing going on for me mm -hmm. and then i've had to go have to do the normal life stuff you yep. know like talk to people and you know whatever business things go to work talk to my boss you know i've right. had to do those things and compartmentalize the horrible thing that i'm also dealing with yeah but in all of those circumstances there was a time where i didn't have to compartmentalize and i could deal with my grief you know right. and talk Absolutely. to the people you know when my dad died or whatever these mm -hmm. situations are mm -hmm. stevens will never deal with it yeah, right. He's not only has to compartmentalize right now, but it's going to just stay in the compartment yeah. forever. Yeah. Um, and of course, who wants to come up and talk to him? But but uh, Cardinal, but Hugh Grant. The other thing, by the way, about his character that I think is interesting is because he is of the later generation. Mm -hmm. He sees Stevens as a human. Well, like yeah. someone I actually think he genuinely does like Stevens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He's I trying to you. connect with him as a real person. Yep. No one else of that class is trying to connect with Stevens or the servants as real people. Yeah. 
And he's talking about fish. Now, as I said before, my main interest has always been fish. <laughs> and what's so interesting is these lines are going to be repeated pretty much verbatim later in the movie. Yeah. He notices that Stevens is not quite with it. And he says, are you all right? Yes, I'm perfectly all right, thank you. Not feeling up well. No, so a little tired, perhaps. Uh, what I wrote down on my notes here is that Hopkins' ability to play layers is amazing. Yeah, I mean, just phenomenal. And Fox, uh, or Lord Darlington, uh, <laughs> tries to sympathize with him by saying, yes, it's been a tough day for all of us. It's been a yeah. you know hard day for all of us. Like, man, were you serving? You were just entertaining right. and having conversations. Don't get me wrong. I know that it can be exhausting. But certainly, you're not serving and attending and having your father. Just, of course, he doesn't know that. But still, he doesn't know that. The idea of you know all the physical work that he was doing the whole time to make it all go off. But him trying I mean, to sympathize. I'll, I'll give know. him a little sympathy in that he's negotiating world politics, and that's you know <laughs> difficult. But I guess. he, I, 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 well, here's something, something I was going to bring up. I wasn't sure mm -hmm. where, but this seems like a good point. Is that there is a difference between a servant and an employee? Yeah, you know. And that these are servants, right? Yes. Like, like I can hire someone to clean my house, mm -hmm. but they're not my servant, right? You know what I mean? They're a human, and I treat them as a human. I yes. treat them, you know, we're the same. It's that that happens to be the job that they're doing. This mm -hmm. happens to be the job. I know that their job is difficult. I know that I have I have cleaned my house. I know what it's like to clean a house. Yes. And they are not beneath me, right? Whereas a servant is a completely different thing. Right. And it's so dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. The the because literally, quite literally, Lord Darlington believes that he is superior to Stevens. Yes. Yes. And Stevens believes that Lord Darlington is superior to him. Yeah. And that he on some level even though this isn't slavery, he belongs to Lord Darlington. His identity is is oh, I yeah. am the butler to Lord Darlington. Yep. As opposed to this is my job. A thousand percent, a thousand percent. Um, and by the way, the conversation with Darlington is all you know, it's 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 another again, word for word that might that comes up later, all right, Stevens? Yes, perfectly, my lord. You were uh, coming down with a cold or something? Yes, it's um, been a long day. <laughs> Stevens now later talking to the doctor who says he's suffered a stroke and it wouldn't have been much pain, and he says, Thank you for telling me. And Stevens touches his dad's face with the back of his hand. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's significant too, because mm -hmm. it's a very distant way of touching. Yes, it is. But also, he's checking it for himself. You know, I had that moment mm. where I, you know, I made them pull out my father's body from the morgue so I could see him when we wow. went uh, when I flew in that night. And they don't normally do that, but I my I would not be told no. Uh, and I had to see it for myself. I had to see it for myself. And so in that moment, he is experiencing seeing his father's, which this body that had so much life in it up until this moment for him, his touching, you're right, it's a bit distant, but he also keeps his hand above his face to see if maybe some breath is coming out of his father's mouth or nose. So it's not real to him until he touches it and sees it for himself. And so it's a little, it's a subtle moment. As you said, Hopkins is so brilliant here with these little moments that can indicate something more going on here. So it's him processing the reality of the loss of his father. 
Well, and in the next moment, he looks at his hands, which is exactly what yeah. his dad was doing yeah. right before. he. And to me, that's something about like, these are the hands that I do my job with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if I'll put this in, but uh, I saw we we had a, like a viewing of my dad's body, too, which mm-hmm. I'm not I'm, I'm not in those. I don't like those things so much. Yeah. But those are rough. so here's what happened oh, is so they asked my mom, what clothes does he want to be buried in? And it's like, yeah. does he have a suit? And and my mom thought about it and she's like, well, he has suits, but you know, that's not really his identity. Like his identity, what he loved were Cal football and basketball games and the San Francisco giants. And so she said, put him in, she gave him them a Cal t-shirt. Or, or I'm sorry, a giants t-shirt and a yeah. Cal like Hawaiian button down shirt, like a short wow. sleeve button down shirt yeah. and a giants baseball cap. So when I go to have the viewing, they had what she expected was that he would have the T-shirt underneath and then unbuttoned would be this sort of Hawaiian button down shirt. Right. But they put it on the other way. So they put the Hawaiian button down shirt on with a T-shirt over it. Yeah. And put the Giants baseball cap on. And it looks so stupid. And (laughs) and so we walked in and I just cracked up. I mean, because it's such a surreal, it's an emotional thing. And and they had done this mistake. And then. And we're sitting, you know, because we're in this room with a body at the funeral yeah. home. And um, and then the funeral d- director, there's papers to sign because you always have to sign a whole bunch of papers and documents. Yeah. And, the, you know, the guy dressed in black and very serious and somber says, you know, we have these papers to sign. And would you like to come to our office? And my uncle Russell, who's my dad's brother, very moved. And he was yeah. like, he was trying to say, I would like to stay here for a moment before we sign the papers. And then we'll go to the office. Right. But the funeral director heard that as I want to sign the papers in this room. Oh, so then he brought all this paperwork to the room and my dad's body is right next to us. Odd. And we're having to with a baseball cap and the T-shirt <laughs> and and it took a while. It was like 25 minutes, you know, to sign all the paperwork. They're like, you know, do you want to pay for this thing or this thing? And we'll take credit cards <laughs> and, you know, like whatever the whole thing was. Yeah. And I couldn't stop laughing. I mean, I was like trying to keep it together. And of yeah. course it was because I was emotional and I was sad, but it just, the yeah. situation, sometimes, you know, these situations could be so surreal. Yeah. You know, when you go through them and it, it's also, it's fascinating to me. And again, I don't know if I'll put any of this in, but at least in my experience, there is a real connection between laughter and grief. Yeah. You know, like you tell the stories and you, and you laugh, yeah. or at least in my experience, that's what it's been. Yeah. Anyway, that's how you deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. My, like I, after my father's wake, my four friends took me out to the TGI Fridays and we just sat right. around talking about stories of my dad, but also talking about stories, their remembrances of my father, of dealing with my father and when talking to him and all of that. So and the jokes and the weird things my dad would say, like the Beatles brought drugs to this country, like all these weird things in my dad. And so and but you laugh about it because that's the way to process it. And it's also a way to honor the memory, to be honest with you, you know. So, yeah. Well. And it's this is, and maybe this is why I'm going to keep that whole this whole thing in mm. because none of this happens for Stevens, right? None of this, yeah. Good There's point. no processing. There's no stories about dad. There's no. Yeah. We're just going to do our job. Yeah. You know, there's no room for any of that. And even at this moment of in the room with his dead father and the doctor, he goes immediately back to duty to the French guy whose feet yep. hurt and wants to see the doctor. Mm-hmm. Because and I and I actually think in Stevens's mind, that French guy's feet is more important than his dead father. Mm. 
Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, I'll take you to him. If it's urgent. Yes, it is urgent. The gentleman is in pain. Mr. Stevens, my condolences. Thank you, Miss Kenton. It is most kind of you. So I went back and timed it. And from the moment Stevens enters the room with the body of his father until he turns to the doctor to bring up the subject of DuPont's blistered feet is exactly 41 seconds. 41 seconds is all the time he gives himself to mourn for his father before returning to his duty, because that is how Stevens defines himself. His father is the tiger in the dining room, and his death must not, under any circumstances, interfere with his lord's evening, because that is what gives the butler's life meaning. And as Stevens turns his back on his father's body, it's a good time for us to end part one of our exploration of the remains of the day. As always, we want to hear what you think of this incredible film. Just visit our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles, or you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. Leave your comments on YouTube. We love hearing them. Please, please, please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done it already, it continues to be the best way for people to find our podcast. As always, you can buy or stream The Remains of the Day along with every other movie we've ever reviewed at cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles and you can follow the show on twitter at cine underscore files on instagram at the cinephiles podcast you can follow me at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram of course john you can find at the roca says on twitter and on instagram and of course don't forget to follow john on his youtube channel where he has shows on everything from politics to wrestling to my favorite show the geek buddies there's amazing content there and you don't want to miss it so that's it for this week. We'll be back next Friday with part two of our exploration of Remains of the Day on The Cinephiles. <laughs>